<laughs> you knew it, didn't you? Even under the best of circumstances, the dreams of fintech pioneers and those who invest in them are difficult to realize. But when things work out, it creates an opportunity for the entire financial services industry to learn, emulate, and build on the breakthroughs. On this episode of Dave and Darm Demystify, we have Peter Deming, Managing Director and Partner at Warburg Pincus LLC. He'll walk us through one of his groundbreaking industry investments. He's joined by Tom Bentley, the Chief Commercial Officer at Bodino and a proven leader across many spheres of fintech innovation. Hear them chat it through on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave. Dave and Dom Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Dom Mystery. Demystify. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Dave and Dom Demystify Show. And this episode, I'm really looking forward to. It's one of my favorite topics talking about the future of financial services or future of banking. And this time we're going to be covering the embedded world. And I've got two fantastic guests and I've been looking forward to this podcast for over a week now. And it's my great pleasure to introduce Peter Deming from Warburg Pincus and Tom Bentley from Vodeno, which is one of the portfolio companies. But Peter, can I hand over to you just to give a brief introduction about yourself? Yeah, happy to. And thanks for having me on your podcast. This is an honor for us. In terms of my background, I've been an investor now for 16 years and 14 years at Warburg Pincus. I've always invested in financial services companies. And that spans what I would characterize as the kind of regulated and capital intensive side of the business. So banks, insurance companies, and wealth management, all the way to the technology and service providers that really kind of support those businesses and support the broader ecosystems. So it's been a privileged career at Warburg Pincus, like I said, 14 years. And it's led me to some really great companies like Bodino. And that's Tom. Over to you. Thanks, Darmesh. This is slightly strange because obviously we were together in Temenos a long time when you were Chief Digital Officer. But yes, I guess for me, 11 years now, purely in fintech, the speciality in all things core banking and digital transformation. So yeah, I spent quite a long time with Temenos, also some time with Fort Machine. So got to see some of the more traditional players and had a great time growing my career there, all the way to some of the new sort of fintech space in London. And really pleased to say that I'm now um, with Vadino alongside Iron Bank as the Chief Commercial Officer there. Fantastic. So, Peter, Warburg's got quite a track record in terms of investing in fintech and financial technology. Could you just give us a bit of background to that before we kind of look forward? No problem. And I'd say we are cheating a little bit because we've been around for over 50 years. When you've been around for over 50 years, you have a lot more time to figure out the right markets and make investments. But the firm has made, let's see, 130 investments in financial services companies, of which 50 we would characterize as fintech. So we were investing in fintech, I think, before the phrase fintech was a term. 
That investment horizon really kind of spans decades and different periods of sort of evolution of technology within the financial services sector. We've invested a lot in the capital markets infrastructure, invested quite a lot in the banking infrastructure. And it goes back to kind of core banking solutions like a business we spun out of M&I Bank called Metavante, which we merged with FIS and we were the largest owner of FIS for a long time. More recent investments in something like Avaloc, another core banking investment we'll talk about a little bit today, an investment in Bodino, which is a slightly modern version of the core banking. So Warburg Pincus has been doing it for quite a long time. And when I talk to people, I'd say what I think we're good at bringing to the table is because we've done investments in technology businesses, but we also have made investments in the users of this technology. I think we bring an interesting perspective to the table, particularly for entrepreneurs who are building their businesses and particularly for sourcing and then understanding the types of investments and the types of companies that we're operating with. It's fantastic. I'm really interested in some of the more recent kind of acquisitions you've done, but maybe we can start with Aon Bank and Vodeno. What was the thinking behind both those investments? Yeah, this is going to sound a little weird, but the starting point was really around thinking about cloud and thinking about the sort of, you know, what it meant from a perspective of the ability to, again, store data and then use that data and doing that in a banking environment. And I'd say we got to the conclusion that in Europe, the regulators were going to start allowing cloud. And that was probably about three years ago, we had some conviction around that. And then the perspective was, okay, that opens up a lot of more interesting sort of use cases for banks, more interesting ways to sort of use data and and sort of store data and then sort of manufacture and create value out of it. But it also means, frankly, probably a new perspective on how the whole technology stack that a bank runs on needs to be architected. About three years ago, we had some conviction that cloud was coming. We made the decision to work with Wojciech Silviari, and he had built a fantastic business in Poland called Alior. And I would, I would characterize one of Alior's USPs. They were great at using technology, sort of a 2007 version of technology, to lower the cost massively to distribute banking product in Poland, and he grabbed massive market share. But when we sat down with Wojciech for his sort of next iteration, which is Ion and Vodino, we said this time around, data is going to be the center of the bank. That's going to be the most important part. We're going to architect around data. And then what we want to do is be able to use that data and then put it back to customers in really useful ways. And if we start from that perspective, we'll architect a slightly different banking IT infrastructure. You don't start from a monolithic core where it's just the general ledger and moving accounts around. You start from actually almost an unstructured data and you start thinking about what you wanted really is the ability to have endless ways to sort of use data and then put it back to customers in really useful ways and and kind of add value. The idea was we'll start, we'll build the own technology and IT architecture. We'll do it from scratch, we'll run it in the cloud. We'll build microservices around it and we'll have the ability to sell parts of that to third parties. That was always the intention. But we're going to have a whole new approach to what really a bank technology looks like. And we started that journey, like I said, three years ago. Warburg Pincus agreed to fund the venture. We put about 65 million euros into what we kind of said the minimum viable product was. And then we bought a bank. We actually migrated that bank within four months onto our IT stack. At least that's a really good time frame, <laughs> including core banking migration got that bank up and running. We actually did the migration early December, closed the year end on our new platform, got regulators comfortable with everything. And then we were sort of off to the races. So that's sort of the background was really the view that something had fundamentally changed in the technology landscape. 
there's a value to the customer. There's a way to kind of do something that was unique for the customer and create, you know, a more interesting value proposition. And frankly, we decided we had to build it because it didn't exist. You know, this is such a new development in the banking world that we said we have to build it from scratch. And so that's what we earmarked 65 million euros for. And then we've invested more money in the growth of the business. With the bank itself, I mean, you see it as a sort of broader play. So the bank is based in Belgium. The bank does have a consumer and SME proposition. So we are actually operating end consumer accounts. We have about 30,000 end consumer accounts. And it is a mostly digital bank. There's a few branches. We have one big flagship branch in Brussels and then um, a few other branches that we had acquired. The proposition is very much a mobile banking proposition. Our customers come to us. They basically pay a monthly fee to be part of the proposition. And the bank does what I mentioned in the beginning, which is we try to take the data that our customers generate, the usage information that they create, and then package it and send it back to them. That's what they pay the monthly fee for. So they get insights into their spending. They get insights into their savings. They'll get nudges on you can save. You're getting a little bit close to your limits. So that's the sort of insights that we can provide to our customers. But also what we do for our customers is in that same monthly package, we offer things that the rest of the banking community can't afford to offer because they haven't invested in the technology to reduce their costs to offer it in a simple monthly package like we do. So an example would be an ETF portfolio. Our customers can have ETFs for a monthly fee. We don't charge like a percent of assets, which is how other banks think of it, or they think of commissions every time a transaction happens. You don't have to pay anything. It's just part of your monthly fee. We use technology to lower all of our costs so we can do this on a very, very low monthly fee for our customers. Similarly, we can offer a wide range of deposits, not necessarily our own, to our customer base, which is, I think, a pretty powerful proposition for customers in Belgium. So our bank in Belgium, is called Ion Bank, has all this great sort of consumer propositions bundled into it. And it's been an interesting journey, I'll say. I've got to say, I think it's a pretty genius move. Three things come out of that. One is that, you know, you're proving the technology with an existing bank. And without naming names, because Dave and I reviewed the market, right? We know that there are a ton of other banking platform providers, but they're learning banking on the job. It's quite easy to put together an accounting engine, but the periphery of this, in terms of the other features that are required, they're learning on the job and almost asking their clients to tell them how to fill in the gaps. So you kind of bridge that gap straight away. The second thing is that you've got data to play with, right, straight away as well. So I, I really love that. And obviously the third thing is you started with brand new technology, you've got no legacy. So you've got something to offer that's unique and different in the marketplace straight away. So I think it's a pretty genius move. The fact you're actually taking quite a customer first approach in terms of this is something over the course of my career, you know, a lot of what I do is at the front end and I'm like, well, where's the customer in all of this? And it's sort of so refreshing to hear that that is front and centre in terms of what you're doing. And actually, what Dom says about data is great, but it's making that data useful. And that, I think, is still a big problem that many organisations are having with oodles of data. How do they kind of make sense of that? And how do they turn it into something useful? I was interested because one of your other recent acquisitions was Personetics, who... I guess, a machine in terms of turning data into actionable insights. And I know one of the other things that they're kind of big on is automation as well. 
did what you were doing in Aeon and Vodina sort of trigger the personetics or do you just sort of see that they're part of this broader story which you're kind of building in Warburg? The answer to that question is the investment in Aeon and the experience we've had with that company helped us build the conviction to invest in personetics and personetics is a supplier to Aeon. They are actually driving a lot of the insights and their artificial intelligence software is running on our platform and working with our data. So that was very helpful for us to build the conviction to make the investment in personetics. But if we take a step back, you know, one of the things that we have conviction on at Warburg is this trend from sort of branch-based banking into online and mobile. And we've made some investments along this path, Varo in the US, Ion, personetics. The thing that we've been exploring a lot recently in personetics comes out of this exploration is the operational challenges that banks have to deal with when they make customer acquisitions from either when they used to make customer acquisitions in a branch versus just a mobile phone. In the branch, you'd sit down with a branch manager and they'd ask you 25 questions and they'd key something into the CRM and they'd build a profile for you. In the new world, actually what we try to do on the mobile apps is get people's onboarding to be as fast as humanly possible, as few screens as possible, as few areas for people to drop off as possible. And at the end, you have a new customer that you know absolutely nothing about. You have no clue what the next proposition (laughs) should be for that customer. And so the only way to solve that is to then start understanding who these people are from the data that they generate, from the types of transactions that they do. Because otherwise you can create a banking experience that makes absolutely no sense for them. And so that's what Personatics does. And that's why we love the company is they build unbelievably detailed customer profiles. And then they start creating user journeys and experiences in the mobile app that make a lot of sense for the end customer. And Ion jumped on this really early. I mean, Personetics is one of the first vendors we interviewed. We knew that the new way that banks interact with customers is very different from the old way. And so we have to build this profile to be useful to the end customer. There's a bunch of other opportunities around this kind of new way to interact with banks. But I do think Ion, as a practitioner in Personetics, is a great supplier, really in a great spot for this. It's fascinating what you're saying around that kind of being truly mobile first, because this is something, again, we keep running into as people claim that they're mobile first. And then when you look at their operations and the way they're kind of deploying and their stacks, you just realise you're not mobile first at all. You're just sort of claiming it. And what you're saying is so kind of on the money, I think, in terms of acquisitions are fast. So you actually need to get people in and then you build the profile. I mean, that's just a great example of what being mobile first means. And I think for me, as a kind of mega trend, which is out there, which is sort of still to go through the industry. So it's sort of interesting to see that you're ahead in that respect as well. So Tom, you know, what's it like having somebody like Warburg's behind you, you know, as an investor backing the proposition? Sure. I mean, look, I think Peter, you can have a better advocate for the businesses that they've invested in. And I think when you look at the overall picture, you get a really good sense of the sustainability story, right, behind this vehicle and the faith in individuals like Wojciech Sobrai. I mean, one of my favorite stories I like to tell is Allior Bank, which was Sobrai's original, was founded in the last financial recession. You know, we've just gone through 12 months of pain and we'd actually launched the bank right at the beginning of COVID, where all of these systems, all of the digital operations couldn't have been more tested. And for me, you know, to bring in the Warburg element, I think there's three key pillars of this relationship that we kind of identify. One is that experience. We talked a little bit about the tech, so it's very easy to build tech propositions, lightning fast fintechs. But when you're building 
banks, when you're acquiring licenses, when you want to do banking as a service properly, you need that deep experience. And to get that not only from our exec team, but also from the team that Wahlberg has surrounded us with and the investments that they've made, you know, it really adds a different dimension to the way that we go and do business. I think the second thing is ecosystem. So we talked about Personetics, ETFmatic, and as Peter mentioned, I won't give anything away, but I think the story is definitely not over. You know, COVID's fundamentally changed the investment landscape. You look at fintechs running for funding rounds and so forth, and that's all well and good. But for us, we're purely focused on not only the end customers of ION, but of course, the end customers for Vidino. So those older banks, those new banks who have to kind of find their way through what's going to be a very sort of difficult territory for the next 12 to 24 months. So for us, our ecosystem to bring these partnerships together, to sort of take the pain up front and take the friction out of not only the purchase of those elements, but of course, the integration is fundamental. And the third thing I keep coming back to it is sustainability. You know, if you look at Wolver Pincus's track record, they haven't just kind of left vehicles to die. They've invested heavily to make sure they work and they've backed the right players. And for me, the Avalon case story is a great story of that. And we're fundamentally committed to not only getting the journey right in partnership, but also kind of leveraging that experience to make sure that we move the dial on the industry as a whole. That's very interesting. What's fascinating is your ability to kind of look at what's going on in terms of customer trends as well, but live those customer trends. I think this whole thing around embedded banking is really, really fascinating. I think there's going to be changes in the ways consumers deal with businesses and banking and things like that, which people haven't really conceived of. I was on a panel, for instance, last week, and someone was talking about switching, how low switching is for traditional players. And I was like, well, that's right. Switching is low because, you know, people still trust their banks. But that doesn't mean to say that they're going to be using that bank in the way that they use them today. What may well end up happening is, you know, money comes into an existing relationship and then goes straight out into a bunch of other relationships. Those other relationships where the kind of funds happening in terms of transactions and things like that. And I think, you know, because of the position you're in, you're likely to be able to sort of see some of these trends happening in real time. It's Absolutely. I mean, for me, SME Marketplace is the one that really has exploded the last 12 months. So if you're Ion Bank as an SME customer, not only do you have that banking relationship, you can do your VAT, your expense management, your invoice creation. We can even actually you know, do your accounting for you from a relationship that we have with a third party. It's about that marketplace of services that I think is really important. I'm really impressed with the funding round and the acquisition strategy of Aon Bank as well. But there's been a number of competitors that have raised similar kind of funding, large rounds of funding. We've seen a swathe of new kind of core banking players or BAS players coming to market, right? And, you know, some of these have been very specialized, let's say, just focused on payments as a service as opposed to just the core. So I totally agree with you, Peter, that the market for this stuff is massive. It's way bigger than the core banking space itself. Right, especially when we consider non-banks getting into the foray. But clearly at some point, there's going to be a bit of a shakeout. Not all of these players can survive. So what is it you think will differentiate winners and losers in the banking as a service space? It's a great question. Look, for me, the fundamental difference, I keep going back to sustainability. So having the access to funds to not only create really great technology, which we've obviously done on the Vidino side, but to have a vehicle that's got the access to the balance sheet, got the experience with the talents, honestly, that we have in our team, not only 
through the Warburg relationship, but directly through the people that were working across all of Europe and into London. Um, for me, that's the main differentiator. And I think what you're seeing is a lot of our competitors have sort of hit the glass ceiling. You know, there's traditionally been this embedded finance story around payments and cards. There's so many facets to where that marketplace is going, whether it be FX, ETF, we acquired ETFmatic a few months ago. There's a whole sort of landscape that's yet to be explored. And I think you've got to have the marriage of really modern born in the cloud technology, which we are, to consume those third party integrations and marketplaces. And alongside that, you've got to have the really strong experience, balance sheet, compliance, all those things that go with it. If you're missing one of those two things, then ultimately, I think it's going to be very difficult to survive. I have two pieces to the puzzle, I think, that are absolutely essential. The first is a close tie with the bank. We made the strategic decision that we needed to own it. It needs to be a sister company. And that way we can move quickly within the regulated entity to deliver the end product that our customers want. Within Vodino, which is the technology business, part of the special sauce is, yes, we have unbelievably good technology, great microservices, all that is wonderful. I think one of the things that we're good at is also working closely with the customers to customize each proposition. We're dealing with very large corporates with their own processes, their own customer experiences, their own onboarding. We can also work within their construct, their requirements, and deliver these embedded banking products that are seamless to their own goals. So whether it's about customer loyalty, is it about speed at checkout? Is it a fraud or a KYC question? Do they need separate accounts to store value? You know, We talked to a customer that was taking in cash deposits to then go out and buy on the customer's behalf a product. It feels a lot better for that end customer to keep their money in a regulated savings or a deposit account as opposed to leaving it on the balance sheet of a corporate. It's not regulated. So that's a great end product for the corporate to offer. What I think Bodino is good at, and I think you need to be good at, is really understanding that customer, who you're selling to, and designing that proposition and frankly, having the technology stack that's flexible enough that works within the construct of whatever you know third party we're interacting with. Uh, can I just add one thing? Because I think it's one of my favorite topics. I know, Dom, it's one of yours and probably yours, Dave, as well. It's migration. Like how many banks have actually achieved you know, the migration of a back book in, in four months, You know, dealing with pretty hefty systems, but not just systems, right? It's processes, it's culture. It's moving the dial from a bank into this new digital era. If I take a wider lens, I won't mention any names. You know, you've seen even the new gen not be able to crack the migration cookie. It's difficult. It's long. It involves multiple teams. And you know, the fact that Ion was able to do that, leveraging you know the strength of the technology in Vadino, but also the team, for me, that's the fundamental difference in terms of what we're really bringing to the table. You know, we've got the picture. We've got the blueprint. You know, we've got the recipe book. We're just kind of now looking actively to those right players who are ready to make that jump. Looking forward, I guess, over the next few years, what are some of the trends that you think you can see emerging? It sounds like embedded finance is a kind of bigger one. Is there sort of other things that you're sort of starting to see or particular interests? Most of the themes that we're exploring outside of sort of this embedded banking theme are really tied to actually applying new technology sets to old processes and ways of doing business. So thinking about what are the uses for artificial intelligence? 
machine learning? Are there pretty interesting use cases for blockchain technology? And then the companies we look for are the companies that have kind of cracked that code, have decided that they've figured out how to leverage those technologies into really useful services that either reduce costs in the system, provide a new product for an end customer, and that are starting to get real traction. That's where we aim our resources and our time. And then we try and invest in those types of businesses. Like, you know, Personetics, perfect example of someone using artificial intelligence to provide a really interesting and value-added service that sort of sits right in a massive macro trend. That was a great one for us. We're extremely excited. And we look for similar types of plays. I mean, that is frankly a huge part of my job is finding that next opportunity like a Personetics, like a Bodino. I hear a lot about things like conversational banking, because this is something, again, we keep running into. Look, if I think about where are the real sticking points within the banking community, where is there too much cost relative to the value add to the bank, to the value add to the customer? I do think you can massively shorten underwriting timeframes. That's an open banking question and a data and analytics question. That's also a question about can you bring in third-party data? How do you add context to data to make it useful? We all talk about data as if each piece of data is equal, and that's entirely not true, right? (laughs) We all know there's completely useless data out there. So I think that's a really interesting opportunity. And again, so much time gets spent within the banking community and lending community on underwriting that doesn't need to be spent. And that's a friction point for customers that no one likes to wait. You know, if it's a mortgage, it can be seven weeks. A consumer loan, you certainly don't want to wait 24 hours or 48 hours to make a decision. So I think that's a really interesting opportunity. I think the regulators would love banks to continue investing in KYC and fraud detection. And to be honest, that's an important opportunity if you want to continue to speed up the rate at which payments get processed. Our view is business to business payments is still a really untapped and poorly served opportunity set. FX is a legacy profit pool for the banks. I still can't wrap my head around. I'm surprised that they still make as much money as they make. The FX pricing model, I think, was established when people picked up phones and sent faxes. And it really did cost, you know, 60 basis points to transact because there was enough movement and volatility between agreement on price and closing. That doesn't exist anymore. That friction point is completely gone. I'm blown away that the banking community can still charge the rates that they charge. There's a host of these things, great macro trends within the banking community. And frankly, Warburg's still really excited about these trends and what I characterize as the fintech opportunity. From a tech angle, maybe for Tom, right? What about some of the underlying mechanics like smart contract? Is that important? Why are you thinking about things like crypto and distributed networks? What about some of those things, Tom? Yeah, there are a lot of topics there, Dom. <laughs> I'll take smart contracts first. So yeah, I mean, smart contracts is fundamental to us and the way that we look at data and the data scheme and the way that we build our products. Why? Because essentially, not only are we generating APIs against the product, we're also able to, you know, essentially build the components. So there's no kind of hard blocks within the build of that product. So let me give an example. Many traditional engines are built componentized, but you can't get directly into the code. You can't get hands up, hands on and change the DNA of that product. So when we start to think about in the legacy world, and I like the word vintage technology rather than legacy. So essentially, when you're kind of migrating products, you know, you need to capture the logic from the past. In the new world, it's about being able to consume not just financial data, but, you know, what about your crypto balance or what about all the other balances? If we start talking about embedded banking, 
you know, you might only want to offer particular lending lines if you've got enough BA points, for example. So the definition by which we will generate products is really interesting. And that's a fundamental pillar of our core technology. To come into crypto and all the other kind of elements, look, there's so many different dimensions, but I'll keep coming back to it. For us, it's about making sure that we uphold our regulatory scrutiny, you know, at the utmost. And this is the difference between being a fundamentally regulated vendor. We're pushing the envelope, I feel, and I won't go back onto that. I think Peter spoke a lot about the things that we're doing with data. But for us, it's coming back to that experience to make sure that we protect the customer at all costs. Because, yeah, it's been quite alarming, really. I mean, watching in crypto, how many people are back to their experiences in 2018, you know, huge amounts of money lost, right? So let's not forget, there's lots of like bleeding out technologies. But for me, it's bringing it back to fundamental customer value. So that's why, you know, things like ETFs, promoting jam jars and saving pots, you know, these are the vehicles. Let's try and incentivize whole generations to keep those saving habits, say, picked up in lockdown. You know, for me, those are kind of the key characteristics of where at least the industry is going in the next 12 months. Fantastic. I mean, look, we could carry on for the rest of the day, I'm pretty sure, but I've really enjoyed this. And that's been some fantastic insights. I really appreciate you opening up, Peter, around the Warburg strategy, especially. And Tom, your insights from using a modern platform. So with that, I'd like to thank you for your time and your insights. And we hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Cheers, Dom. Cheers, Dave. Thank you so much. Yeah, guys, it was a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dom Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvelous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.